And um, just to let you know uh, what's going to be happening in the next three weeks here at the teaching service, we are at the moment looking at the series Beyond Death, What Happens After You Die. And today I'm going to be finishing the teaching on hell in that part of the series. And then next week, I'll be teaching on life in the millennium. Um, just in case the doctrine's new to you, you say, what do you mean life in the millennium? What I mean by life in the millennium is this, is that when Jesus returns and uh, we are raptured, then what will happen is that will herald in a thousand years of Jesus ruling and reigning on earth, and we in our resurrected bodies will rule and reign with him. Well, what's that going to be like? Because if Jesus tarries and we die, we're going to be raised on his return, and then we're going to rule and reign with him for a thousand years on the earth. What's that going to be like? How's that going to exist? What will we look forward to during those thousand years, what we call the millennium, which uh, is mentioned at the end of the book of Revelations? But that's the subject for next Sunday. Uh, some of you will be aware of the teaching of the millennium. Some of you might have never heard what I just said. Well, come next week and uh, I'll fill you in. And then after that Sunday, the next Sunday, I will be teaching on heaven. What will it be like in heaven according to scripture. But then the Sunday after that, uh, three Sundays time, which will be the last in this series of Beyond Death, we have a special guest coming to be with us at the five and the seven, Robert Slayden. And he is going to be teaching uh, I Saw Heaven. When he was eight years old, he had an experience where the Lord took him up to heaven. And in that experience, he experienced different aspects of heaven. He's written a book about it, and he's going to come and tell us his experience. You know, Paul the Apostle had experiences. I mean, he said, I don't know whether I was in the body, if I was out of the body, but I've been into the heavenlies. Uh, God gives people experiences sometimes to illustrate the Word of God. It doesn't replace the Word of God. Even Robert, Roberts admits that if there's anything in his experience that doesn't line up with the Word of God, well, then it's not true. But God does give people at times and seasons experiences like he had as an eight-year-old boy to illustrate, to give us a feel of what the Word of God is speaking about. So that's going to be exciting to have Roberts with us to finish off this series on a wonderful note of what it, what, what it must be like to experience um, heaven. Just to... I mentioned you may have seen on your way in this evening that we do have a lot of sales going on in the bookshop, uh, not just our material. A lot of our material is out there in the foyer. Do visit um, that area to see what sort of offer, if there's anything that interests you. And of course, downstairs in our bookshop, we have uh, percentages off Bibles, Derek Prince material, all types of things. So it is worth a visit to see if there's anything there that interests you. Well, today I'm going to finish a sort of introduction teaching to the doctrine of hell. Probably the least taught doctrine in the Western church today, the doctrine of hell. The doctrine of hell is extremely unpopular with modern-day preachers. Um, they feel that it's inappropriate. They feel that it's like something that's out of the Middle Ages. Uh, many very popular preachers have actually changed the doctrine of hell to fit their own purposes. 
uh, and, and we looked last week at some of the teaching, the false teaching, that says, in the end, everybody will be saved. That after people die, those that are Christians go to heaven, but those that aren't Christians will be given a second chance, a third chance, and some of them as many chances as it takes until they all get saved. And uh, we looked in that session and saw that really what we're seeing in Jesus' teaching about hell is that is not the case. And remember, the majority of the teaching on the nature of hell was by Jesus himself. It's almost like he said, this doctrine is so important that I need to teach it. I, I need to make sure that it comes from my mouth. You know, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, he was saying when he said truly, truly, or verily, verily, depending on your version, he was saying, listen, I'm not just giving ideas. What I say is the whole truth, the total truth. I mean, when he spoke about heaven, he, he made sure people realized it. You know when he said, I go to prepare a, a mansion for you? I go to prepare a place for you? And he says, if it were not true, I wouldn't have told you. So he was saying, look, I'm going to go, but I'm going to heaven to prepare. We'll talk about the mansions um, in a couple of weeks. I'm going to prepare a mansion for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's why I'm going. And, and don't think that I'm making this up, because if it wasn't true, I wouldn't tell you. Well, how much, almost I feel like, how much more should Jesus tell us the truth and nothing but the truth about hell? And what hell is, its nature, and who goes there, uh, and, and the warnings that he brings. William Booth, the, uh, uh, the founder of the Salvation Army, prophesied about what the church would be like in the 20th century, in the main dangers, and everything he said has come to pass. I'll quote him. William Booth said, The principal danger of the 20th century will be a religion without the Holy Spirit, Christians without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, being born again, politics without God, and a heaven without hell. Robert Browning, the great poet, said this, and I think this is so counter to the way that people think today, but it is so pertinent for what we're talking about. He said this, there may be a heaven but there must be a hell when he'd witnessed what, what the world was like. Most people today, it seems, say, well, oh, yeah, there, 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 there's a heaven, but I doubt there's a hell. And if there is, it's only for really, 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 really bad people of which I don't consider myself one. And so we, we've looked at do all go to heaven. We, we looked at uh, one session on the picture of Gehenna, there's different words for hell uh, in the New Testament, words like Hades, Tartarus. But we looked at the picture of Gehenna, the, the picture that Jesus used about the dump that was outside Jerusalem, where everything that, that was no longer useful was placed in Gehenna. Gehenna was the dump. And there, there was two things that would take place in Gehenna. Um, there would be uh, the fire. They would burn up the non-organic rubbish. So all the furniture that was broken, all the things that didn't work, would be taken to Gehenna, and the fires would never go out in Gehenna. Day and night, at nighttime in the dark, you could go out, and, and, and aptly speaking, the gate in the Jerusalem walls that faced Gehenna was called the Dung Gate. And so you go out the Dung Gate, and then in the dark, you just see the flames 
of the burning rubbish tip. But also, there were maggots and worms and these types of things that were in Gehenna because they would deal with all the organic rubbish. And so when Jesus used Gehenna, he was using Gehenna, the rubbish dump, as a picture of what hell, the purpose of hell, and what would happen in hell. Remember in Gehenna, the rubbish dump? You know, you know I have a local rubbish dump. I don't know if you do. And sometimes when, when you go to the rubbish dump, you see the guys that are there, and they're like filtering what people throw away. And so sometimes they go, oh, not that desk. Don't throw that desk. We'll, we'll keep that desk. And you can see lined up all the sort of things that they've redeemed. They've seen the desk or the stereo or whatever it is. And they said, oh, that's actually still got a purpose. That, that's, not, that's not rubbish. And they redeem it. You're not allowed to sort of throw it into the dump. But all the other things, I mean, I remember going once with um, uh, a sort of chest of drawers, and, uh, which we didn't need anymore. And I thought the best thing was just to take it to the dump, so we did. And, uh, and my wife said, you know, may, may, maybe they can use that. We can't use it, but maybe they'll use that. So um, we went up to, we were, we, were, we were offended for about five minutes, actually, because we'd had that in our house for quite a while. So we went up to the man and said, oh, do, 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 you know, we we're going to throw this away, but do you think we could use it? No, no, don't need that. What was it? Is it? What's that? Don't need that. That's chipboard, mate. Chipboard. <laughs> throw it in the dump. And we're like, oh, all right, okay. So, it, but anyway, I'm, I'm digressing. I'm, I'm um, getting offended again. No, but... You, the stuff that goes in the dump, it, you, could, you take tires or whatever to special... The, why? the tire has perished. It's of no purpose. It's no use anymore. The things you throw in a dump are not fit for purpose that they were intended. They're ruined. They're perished. And this is a, an important thing as I go on to today in some of the things because the reason that people end up in hell, those that reject the gospel and end up in hell... They end up in hell, or Gehenna, as Jesus uses, because they're not fit for purpose. They, they, they have perished. They're not fit for purpose. What is the purpose of human beings? The great Westminster divines in the Westminster Catechism, they, the first question they would ask a new believer who would learn these questions to learn doctrine, the first question was asked is this, what is the chief end of man, meaning man and women? What is the chief end of man, or the chief purpose of man? And they would say, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so those that will end up in Gehenna in hell are the people that have refused to glorify God or acknowledge him and his true gospel and have refused the opportunity to enjoy him forever. And therefore, they, they, they are purposeless and therefore they are put into a place of waste, just like if a tire lost its tread, you wouldn't put it on a car. It's lost its purpose. It should be fit to put up, be put on your car, but it has no grip. It's perished, just like a washer from a um, a tap. That when it perishes, it no longer there's a drip. You take the washer. The washer's still there, but it's lost its purpose. It's perished, and I'll come back um, to that today. So I want to look later on today. At, um, at the question, um, will hell last forever? Because some people believe that heaven will last forever, but some people believe that hell, or people that are put in hell, that they will not be in hell forever, that they will at some point 
be totally uh, obliterated, or the doctrine that they teach is the doctrine of annihilation, that they will cease to exist. And I want to address that later. But before we did that, I thought I'd finish this section in our after death on hell by just taking you on a little walk through some aspects of the teaching in the New Testament so that, you, like I said, I think with this doctrine, the best thing is just to let Jesus speak for it as much as possible himself. Yeah, make a few remarks. But, you know, Jesus made it plain. And what can happen is, is that some teachers take hold of the plain teaching of Jesus and so twist and turn it and, and manipulate it that what they end up is almost the opposite to what Jesus was plainly saying uh, to the church. So let's, let's have a look at this. Let's have a look at um, uh, Mark, then we'll go to Matthew, and um, then we'll go and have a look at what Paul says about hell, and then John says about hell, and then we'll ask the, answer this question, uh, will people be in hell forever, or will there come a point when they are annihilated and no longer exist? If you have your Bibles, I would like you to turn with me, because I'd like you to look at these scriptures. Mark chapter 9 and verse 42. I'm just going to take you through some of the words of Jesus on hell. We, we've done some of these before, but I want to do it in a little bit more of a systematic way. Mark chapter 9, 42. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble... It would be better for him if a millstone were thrown round his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to be enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Where their worm does not die. See the picture of Gehenna? Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched. Where? The worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, what Jesus is, is saying here is, is, is he's not saying that if you make a mistake or if you sin tomorrow, say you look at somebody lustfully for a moment, that you're going to end up in hell. That's not what he's talking about in this section. We know that we go to heaven by grace, don't we? It's a free gift. We just believe and we go to heaven. What Jesus is doing here is he is showing us how terrible a place hell is to end up. He, he's showing us. And, and what he's doing is he's saying that hell is actually worse than death or than pain on the earth. He's almost saying like this. He's saying, how can I show you how bad hell is? Well, it's better to drown than end up in hell. Well, it's better to be maimed on earth than to end up in hell. Well, it would be better that your eye was plucked out than to end up in hell. In other words, he's saying, it's a pretty horrible thing to be drowned. It's a pretty horrible thing, you know, to cut your, to cut your, your, your hand off. Uh, it's a pretty horrible thing to pluck your eye out. I mean, God forbid, but if I gave you a, a machete and said, 
cut your hand off, do you think you'd be able to do it? There was that film, wasn't there, in Hollywood about a man who was um, climbing in the rocks and he got his leg, I think it was, I haven't seen it, but he got his leg caught in in the thing and, and the only way, his arm was it, thank you, he got his arm stuck in the rocks and there was no one to help him and the only way that he could save his life was to cut off his arm. I mean, I haven't seen it, but it must be a horrible situation to think, well, what do I do? I either perish with my arm or I lose my arm and I survive to live the tale. And it was a true story. Well, if I was to give you a machete and said, would you cut off your arm? Could you do it? And no, I don't think I could either. I think I'd have probably perished in that rock. Could you do it? If, if, I, if, I, was to give, if I was to give you, um, you know, something to pluck your eye out. I know. I'm doing this on purpose as well. <laughs> would you pluck it out? If, if, I was to, if I was to say, here, here's a really, really heavy weight to go around your neck, uh, would you jump into the deep end of the swimming pool? Would you do it? Well, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, you, uh, you people are so, nat- not you, but you people I'm speaking to, Jesus is saying, is you're so thinking about the natural life. And you're like, oh, cut off my arm. Oh, pluck off my eye. I couldn't do that. What, put a millstone around my neck and throw myself in the deep? Oh, that is just awful. And he's saying, that's nothing. That is nothing compared to hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And he says that three times, fire and worm. The worm is not dying. It's continually there. The fire is not quenched. This is a continual experience that he's speaking about. He's showing that hell is a punishment for sin. I've already said the way that we deal with sin is not by cutting off our arms. Do you know, in the Middle Ages and before in church history, there were people that, that they must have been a little bit mentally disturbed, who actually did cut off their hands because they were worried that they, that they were sinning with it, that, that they did pluck out their eyes because they were worried that they'd look lustfully and they, they just totally misunderstood. No, the way that you deal with sin is put your sin on Jesus on the cross and say, Lord, you carried it. You carried my sin. I remember one Muslim said to me, I had to hand it to him. It was cheeky, but very clever. He said, you know, Jesus teaches Sharia law. I said, what? Jesus does not teach Sharia law. Yes, he does. Because he says that the pen- penalty for like thieving and sin is to cut somebody's hand off. And he was referring to this passage. Amazing, isn't it? So, so we see this. And also, we see in verse 47 that it's God that casts the person into hell fire. You are cast into hell fire. So there's a passage. Let's, let's go, and, and you can see this passage also in Matthew, but, but let's go to Matthew. Because the message of hell doesn't start with Jesus. It's there in John the Baptist's preaching, even before Jesus comes. So it was a theme of John the Baptist's teaching. I think that's uh, important. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7. Following. But when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, Brood of vipers, who warned you of the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. 
Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Can you see? There's another unquenchable. Uh, uh, a fire that cannot be extinguished, an eternal, everlasting fire. So in this passage, we see that hell is a danger. He is warning, especially the Pharisees, of the danger of hell. He believes, in verse 8 7, that there is a wrath to come. What is the wrath of God? When we talk about the wrath of God, Paul, as, uh, in Romans, he talks about the wrath of God to come. He talks about the wrath of God, which is revealed right now against all ungodliness. What is the wrath of God? The wrath of God is God's righteous, measured, appropriate anger and hatred of sin. All right? It is God's appropriate anger and hatred of sin. You know, God doesn't sit there like some sort of non-emotional judge just passing sentence. God has emotions. He has feelings about sin. God hates sin. doesn't just judge sin. He hates sin. And so God's judgment against sin, unless, Jesus, unless you're saved, God's judgment against sin is wrathful. It's his just anger. And modern day Christians find that very difficult because they, they try and project falsely a God that just flies off the hang, handle. You know, he's a God that's very volatile. Watch it. You'll get, you'll get him angry. I mean, you need someone like Moses or Abraham to calm him down. You remember he was going to destroy Sodom? And he did. But uh, 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 Abraham said, whoa, calm down, God. Count to ten. Take a chill pill. What if there's a hundred righteous people there? I don't think you've thought this through. What if there's fifty? What if there's ten? And God is like, oh, sorry. I... All right, Abraham. If there's ten, if there's one. Okay, thank you. And then Moses. And, and God says to Moses, I am going to destroy this people and start all over again with you after they, the golden calf. And it's like Moses goes, whoa, easy boy. Easy, calm down. Have a cup of tea, Lord. You're not going to do that, are you, Lord? What are they going to say in Egypt? That you took us out to destroy us. And God's a, duh. Oh, yeah, I didn't think about that. I was so angry. I, I just saw the red mist, Moses. Now, that's a parody. That's, that's not the truth of what was going on at all. Firstly, God's righteous anger was absolutely appropriate. Just as Jesus' anger in the temple was totally, perfectly the right, appropriate reaction to it. When Jesus said, you vipers brood, he hadn't lost his temper. He was angry. But he hadn't lost his temper. But his, his, his reaction and his harsh words to the Pharisees were absolutely appropriate with the appropriate emotion that came with it. So in those pictures of the Old Testament, that God was totally appropriate. And yet he'd placed in the heart of his servants, Abraham and Moses, 
mercy. And it was his spirit that was interceding through Abraham. His spirit that was interceding through Moses. What? Is Abraham more merciful than God? Is Moses more merciful than God? So you can see how people parody what's here um, in the Bible. But the wrath of God is real. And, and if you don't believe that the wrath of God is real, look how the Father poured out the wrath of his anger, appropriate emotion. Look how the Father poured out the wrath on his Son. The beautiful thing about the cross is it brings God's love and God's wrath together. The cross is the greatest illustration of God's love, well, illustration, it's the greatest act of God's love for humankind, but it is also the, the, the most revealing act of God's hatred of sin. I mean, I remember thinking to myself many years ago as a student, you know, just thinking silly things, I used to think, why couldn't you have put, like, Jesus to death, Lord, by, I don't know, um, putting his head on a chopping board and cutting his head? That, that a Roman citizen was allowed was not allowed to be crucified, he would be executed by, by the axe. So that would be far more humane, Father. And Jesus would have still died for our sins, wouldn't he? But you'd have cut his head off. Or couldn't there be some more humane way of putting Jesus out of his, out of his if I can say this, misery? Couldn't we like, have, couldn't Lord, Father, you like knocked him on the head as he was unconscious and then pinned him on the cross? I was just thinking these, the, these thoughts. And of course I realized that no, because Jesus had to experience the full wrath of God against sin so that we wouldn't have to experience it, we who believe. And so what Jesus went through was the outpouring of righteous wrath and indignation against you and my, mine sin. Jesus did not deserve what he experienced on the cross, did he? He was the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God, who took away the sins of the world. There was no fault found in him by anybody. So he was suffering what we should have been suffering. So you can look at the cross and say, I see the love of God. Oh, the love of God in the cross is, is the greatest revelation of the cross. Alongside, though, the wrath of God. And some people talk about God's love and they don't realize that God's love and God's justice are together. You can't speak about God's justice without God's love. I tell you what, if you speak about God's justice without God's love, we're finished. It's like the old-fashioned, you know, fire and brimstone preacher, or the one that sort of like walks down Oxford Street. I don't know if they still do with that placard. The property police would arrest them these days. You know, the end is nigh, or you're all going to burn, or you're all going to be destroyed. And, and, and some of these people that, you know, these, these, you know, hateful Christians that will go, you know, to a great gay, gay pride march, and they'll have these Leviticus things about, you know, God hates homosexuals and things like that. Uh, and, and what are they doing? Well, they're, they're talking about justice, not that God hates homosexuals. He loves homosexuals. He loves heterosexuals. He loves every sexuals there are. He loves them. But sin, in all its forms, God hates. But he loves the sinner. So you have people that not so much this today, but you do. You can still go to some of these churches where they're so on God, preach God's wrath that they're out of balance. But that's not the danger of the Western church by and large today, especially popular charismatic churches. They preach the love of God without the justice of God, the wrath of God. They, they, they write books called Love Wins. 
But you write a book called Love Wins in the End, fine. But justice also wins in the end. And I want love to win in the end, but I also want justice to, to win in the end. I want what's right to happen, and, and God wants both. So you, you can't talk about one without the other. If you do, you do not have the God of the Old or New Testament before you. You are not portraying the Jesus that, that, we, that we are reading. So the wrath of God. He speaks about an impending axe is going to come to the tree. John the Baptist thought this was going to happen very soon. Do you know, the modern day church has problems with the judgment of God. They have problems with hell. It's like, how can God send people to hell? How can God allow people to be in hell forever? And it's like, the modern day church has problems with, with, with God's judgment. But it seems to me that a lot of the writers in the Old and New Testament, they didn't have any problem with God's judgment. They had problems with his mercy. I mean, you say, well, what do you mean? Well, look at Jonah. Jonah's problem wasn't the judgment of God. Jonah's problem was he didn't judge. Do you remember Jonah sitting under that tree, annoyed? Because the sinners didn't get judged. God said he was going to judge the sinners, and they didn't get justice. God's great let, grace let them off. And Jonah had problem with the grace of God. You look at um, uh, some, of the, um, some, of, some of the other prophets as, uh, as well. They, they had problems with, the, like Hosea, they had problems with the, uh, sorry, Habakkuk, they had problems with the justice of God. It's like, how come the sinners get away with it? How come you haven't judged these evil nations, evil people, evil blasphemers? We don't understand God. Why do you allow the evil person to prosper? Can you hear? You know, I'm, I'm touching. You can say, yeah, you see a lot of that in the Psalms. It's, Why aren't you judging them? That was their problem. <laughs> their problem was trying to understand God's grace. But in this day and age, people's problem is, is, and also the problem that they had is, why aren't you judging them? And why aren't you judging them now? And John the Baptist thought, hey, he's coming. Jesus is coming. I'm preparing the way. And when he comes, he's going to sort you out. So you better get your lives right because he's coming to judge his axe. His axe is up. It's about to hit the tree. That's more of a golf swing, isn't it? It's, it's about to hit the tree. He's, he's, gonna, he's got his winnowing fork ready. He's going to come in and get the grain out. And the chaff is going to be burnt in it. It's going to happen. And one of the things was is that John the Baptist didn't see the difference between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. It sort of like was all one in his mind. That's why he said, Jesus, are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? Because, you know, I don't see your winnowing fork. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't see your axe at the trees, I see you healing people, uh, bringing prostitutes to the Lord. I see, I see. So he had to ask. And Jesus said, yeah, people are being healed. The poor are being preached. And so John said, okay, I've, I, I, okay, I've put the two comings here together. But So John was expecting judgment to come um, in, in this situation. Uh, if we stay in Matthew, we've looked at this in the Sermon on the Mount, but I just want to build this picture for you today before we leave it so you can hear what the Bible says about this. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. Verse, tw verse 21, sorry. Matthew 7, 21. Verse 19 already speaks about a tree not bearing good fruit being thrown into the fire. But 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, 
Have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, uh, you who practice lawlessness. And so we there get a picture of people that come to him, and Jesus says, do you know what? I never knew you. Depart from me. This shows us that, that this departing is that hell or dying without being saved means that you are not in the presence of God. In fact, you are cast out of the presence of God. Here's something I heard somebody said that I think is um, very interesting. Do you know, the only hell that a believer will ever experience or taste is in this life. You say, what do you mean? I mean, the evil, the sin, the... The only hell you will ever taste will be in this life. But the only heaven somebody who dies unbelieving will taste will also be in this life. Because although the world is fallen, we therefore experience the fallen things. But in heaven, we'll experience nothing that's fallen. Everything will be perfect. One of the things I like about Robert's teaching on I Saw Heaven is he gives you, he tells you what it's like to feel, to be in a place where there's no sin, no resistance to God. And, and, he, and it's such an impartation when he talks about that. So the nearest, or maybe I should put it like this, the nearest you'll get to hell or experience hell is your life on earth as a believer. But the nearest an unbeliever will ever get to heaven is his life here because of God's common grace. There's still beauty in the world, not just in, in the church. We've mentioned this, but outside the church. People are made in the image of God. They may not be Christians. They may be from another religion. But you can still see in people of other religions and even in some of the teachings of some religions, honor, peace, goodness, can't you? It, it, it's, you can still see, maybe broken, but the image of God in all human beings, yes? But of course, when those human beings end up in hell, there will be no image of God in hell. There'll be no, any, any goodness or grace that was in their lives during their time on earth will all be gone. They will become the fullness of the God-hating, unregenerate nature. Thank God, God is restraining. People and nations aren't as bad as they could be because God restrains, and we're salt and light. We also have it a bit. But when, when people end up in hell, God takes off the restraints. So I said, was it last week or the week before, you can know somebody who dies, a non-Christian, not believing, and, and it's, important, it's difficult to say. You never know what happens to someone on their deathbed, yes. So I prefer to, I, I'm not here to judge. I'm here to warn. So when someone says, oh, do you think so-and-so? I said, I don't know what happened in the moments that they die. That's not for me to judge. But if someone dies, and, and they might be the most lovely person you've ever met on earth, except they're not Christians, but lovely, kind, caring, yes? Don't think that they're in hell, lovely, kind, caring, because all of those things are by the grace of God and, and have come out of them from by being in a world that still has the uh, images of God and, and the influence of God in it. But in hell, there's no influence of God. There's no restraint of God. And one of the reasons I believe that hell lasts forever and ever is because the people that are in hell are sinning forever and ever. You hear what I'm saying? They're not there repenting. Oh, I'm sorry, Father. Repentance is a work of the Holy Spirit. They might be angry that they're there and why aren't I in heaven? 
but they will not be like the people that you, you, you met. Oh, there was such a, he was such a loving, kind man, such a loving, kind person. There's no love no, loving, there's no kindness in hell. And so the worst a person can be, that's what they'll be in hell, the worst that they will be. Eternal hell, because these people will continue to hate God and, 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 and to sin. Also, if we uh, go to Matthew 8, 12, or 8, or, or 8, 11. And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is another phrase that we pick up again and again. Darkness. Not light. Darkness. Some people say, how can hell be dark and also have unquenchable fire at the same time? Um, because Jesus said so. Because Jesus said so. I mean, what planet are these people on? Some people say, ah, these pictures of darkness, these pictures of fire, these pictures of worms, they're symbols. There's not going to be real fire and real worms and real darkness. This is Jesus using symbolic language. Well, if he is using symbolic language, then the sim symbolism he is using must be better than the reality of what he's trying to portray. Do you hear what I'm saying? If these are just symbols, gnashing of teeth, um, fire never dying, worm, if these are just symbols and they're horrible, how much worse must the reality be? Do you see what I'm saying? So saying they're symbols doesn't suddenly tone down what we are, we are talking about. And the weeping and gnashing of teeth is a picture of anger, of sorrow, of frustration. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 36. The church of Jesus Christ needs to hear these scriptures. Matthew 13, 36. A parable. Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Jesus answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares, or the uh, nettles, or weeds, are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those that practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth, but the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Can you see how Jesus is comparing those that are saved with those that refuse to believe his message? And you can see the imagery is the imagery that we have been looking up. Finally, in Matthew, if you turn to Matthew 25, we have three parables that also speak about the future judgment to come. Matthew chapter 25. The first one is the faithful and the evil servant. Twenty-five verse. 
Oh, sorry, is that this? Oh. oh I'm getting it all mixed up. Okay. Now, the, f the first one in chapter 25 is... Uh, oh, no, so it's 24. Chapter 24, verse 43. I'm not going to read it there, but if you look at chapter 24, verse 43, you see the picture of the master of the house. What knew what hour of the feast was coming, he, he would not come and be ready for the Son of Man who comes at an hour. Then he speaks about the faithful and wise servant who's ready, but then he speaks about the evil servant in verse 48 of Matthew 25, saying, my master's delaying, he, he acts evil, and then the master comes... Uh, on that day, verse 50, when he's not looking for him and at an hour that he's not aware of, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then in chapter 25, we have the wise and foolish virgins. virgins. I'm not going to go through that whole thing, but come, come with me to, um, to verse 10. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came... And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. After the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered and said, Assuredly, I do not know you. See, people who say, oh, I think that people get a second chance to receive Jesus after they die. Well, what? They're knocking on the door, are they? They died, and they get a second chance. Well, here's a picture. Jesus has returned. People aren't ready. They haven't believed. They've put off receiving the gospel, and the door is closed. The judgment has been made. Well, they come and they knock on the door. Hello, is there a second chance? And Jesus doesn't keep the door open. The door is shut, and he says, I do not know you. He doesn't say, oh, all right, come on then, you're a bit late, and open, open, open the door. And then the final of these three um, uh, parables that have this note of judgment in, is the parable of the talents, which uh, comes straight after that. And we know there's those that use their talents and those um, that don't. And then right at the end, it says, verse 30 of chapter 25, and, the cast, and cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay. Now, I just want to spend some time with Paul because some people say, Oh, you don't hear much about eternal punishment except outside the Gospels, what I've already said. The teaching on eternal punishment comes mainly from the mouth of Jesus. You can find it in the Gospel of John there. You can find it in Revelation. But Paul, it's true, does not ever use the word hell in his teaching. And some people say, well, Paul never uses the word hell in his teaching. But if we turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5... You can see this note is very strong in his mind. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 5. Talking about the persecutions the church are going through, and he says, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing, with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus has revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance taking vengeance the portrayal of Jesus in the modern day church is so meek and mild and wishy-washy 
But Paul says when Jesus comes, he's taking vengeance. Now you might say, Bruce, you're talking about wrath, you're talking about hell, you're talking about vengeance. Yeah, but we also preach the gospel of grace and love, don't we, at this church? But this is just as much part of the gospel as God's love, mercy, and graciousness. The Lord, next time we see the Lord coming, he won't be coming meek and mild in a stable. He'll be coming with flaming angels for an act of vengeance. Is your Jesus, this Jesus, in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. So that makes it pretty, uh, pretty, pretty um, obvious. Also in Romans chapter 1 verse 18, I've already mentioned it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. And I mentioned to you in last week or the week before, how does God judge people on earth? Does he send lightning bolts? Does he send tsunamis and uh, hurricanes? That's not how God does that. There might be elements of judgment in a fallen world. And you know, the world is fallen. So within the fallen world, not everything is God's will. That happens in a fallen world. You know, we all die and, and that's part of the fallen world. It's part of the judgment that's in a fallen world. But no, we don't look at hurricanes and say, oh, there's God. oh God's sorting out America again. God's sorting out, no, 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 no. The way that God is revealed to, to um, judge people in Romans, a demonstration of his wrath is this. He takes his restraint his hand of restraint, off. He prevents them. He stops preventing them from being as bad as they could be. And three times in Romans chapter 1, going into chapter 2, it says, he gave them over to their own desires. He gave them over. In other words, thank God, God restrains. Human beings, nations aren't always as bad as they could be. But if God wants to judge a person or a nation, what does he do? He just says, all right, that's what you want, go. I won't restrain you anymore. I'll take off my restraint. And so when you look at the Holocaust in Nazi Germany, you say, what? how did God allow that? How did God, how, you know, how could God? God simply took his hands off those Nazis, stopped restraining them, and their unregenerate nature was unrestrained, and they became everything that they were by nature. Unrestrained. Because sometimes when you read in Romans, you know, <laughs> there's a great picture in Romans of, of what, what a sinful person is like, backbiter, and, and, and the picture of, these, of, of the sinful nature. You think, I don't know many people like that. I mean, it's a, it's a tragic, horrific picture of a sinner in Romans, that what a sinner is. You know, their, their tongues are graves and everything. And you think, well, I know lots of non-Christians that aren't like this. Yeah, well, thank God, God's restraint in this earth that's not fully fallen. And by his spirit, they're not as bad as they will be. But I tell you what, if God took his hand off restraint of any unbeliever, they would become those things because you always end up becoming who you really are. And, th and there's a flip side to this. 
Can you see how God speaks to us and, and says, become who you are. Don't be like you were. Become who you are. Let your new nature, stop restraining your new nature. New creation, born again. Stop restraining it with the old ways. Let your new nature come out. And your new nature will be the fruit of the Spirit. Let it come out. Don't do the works of the flesh. That's the old nature. The unrestrained old nature, the non-Christian that's unrestrained, will become all of the things that are in the works of the flesh. That's who they are by nature. I know lots of non-Christians that aren't adulterers. I know. Thank God. God's grace. But if they become who they are by nature, unrestrained, can you see where they'll go? I'm going to move forward and I'm going to finish now by, by looking, as I said I would, at, at just this teaching of annihilation. The belief, and this, was, this is a very popular view in Great Britain amongst so-called evangelicals. A lot of Bible-believing pastors, or who would consider themselves Bible-believing, pastors and vicars, uh, believe in this doctrine called annihilation. And this is the teaching that those who die unsaved will ultimately be destroyed and will no longer exist at some time or the other. Some teach that the unbeliever, as soon as they die, they're disintegrated, they no longer exist. Well, that's what a lot of atheists believe anyway, don't they? I mean, I know atheists who are friends of mine, they believe that when they die, it's all finished, they cease to exist. Others say, well, we can't really mess with Scripture that much. There's obviously a period of punishment that they go through in hell. But they, they ask questions like this. They say, but, you know, the words eternal and destruction, do they really mean, does it, the word eternal that we were reading, does it really mean forever and ever? The word destruction, what does that mean? We, we looked in Thessalonians, it spoke, spoke about destruction. Jesus speaks about destruction. So let me just make an allusion to this. The word eternal in the Greek uh, is, we use words like eons, aeons. Well, the word eternal in Greek is aeonios. A-I-O-N-I-O-S. A-I-O-N-I-O-S. And they say, well, this word, aeonios, means age. Age to come. And so they teach that, oh, what will happen is in, in the age to come, the aeonios, in that age to come, Believers will live forever in heaven in that age to come. But in the age to come, unbelievers will be destroyed. They will no longer exist in the age to come. They'll be obliterated and no longer exist. And then the word that we use, sometimes it's translated forever and ever, is Ionios, and it's Ionios twice. It's ages of ages, Ionios twice, to put it, put it bluntly, everlasting. And they say, well, that's just talking about the age of ages. We've got many ages, but when, when, when the Jesus comes and wraps it all up, we're going to go into the age of ages. And in that age, the believers will last, but the righteous will be destroyed. Well, we've looked at some of the scriptures that I could refer to over the last few weeks, and we see that the righteous and the unrighteous are always paralleled. And so... The righteous go into eternal bliss, and the unrighteous into eternal punishment. So, you have no really right to say that one lasts forever and ever, and the other doesn't last forever and ever, because it's the same word. You hear what I'm saying? 
And we find in Matthew 25, verse 31, verse 40 to 46, Matthew 25, verse 31, it says that the believers will go into everlasting life and the unbelievers into everlasting punishment. So the word there is speaking about ongoing, conscious existence. And the word, Ionis, is used for everlasting. That's why it's used twice. It's everlasting. It's the age of ages. It's the age that never completes. So this is a false understanding. Number one of the word, that they're not understanding the context of the word. And also, when you read the way it's being used, it's used about fire that's not quenched. It's used about worm that's not died. Jesus' teaching teaches an eternal consciousness. Now, the word destruction is also used by annihilationists. They say, well, destruction means extinction. It means to be totally destroyed. And so, uh, the, the, when Jesus speaks about destruction, or we see, it means that, that the wicked will be destroyed. What happens when you destroy something? It no longer exists. And so, they use this word. Now, this word is apollomai. You ever heard the word Apollo? Hammersmith Apollo? Well, that word Apollo means correctly destruction. But also that word is not just used for destruction, it's used for often when you read in the New Testament about lost, the lost coin, yeah, the word is apollomai. Uh, the wineskins in Matthew 9, 17, the wineskins that have holes in that are useless, the word useless is apollomai. Uh, so we see that the word apollomai actually means perished, lost, useless. And R.T. makes this point very cleverly, in, uh, not cleverly, but very thoroughly. And so the word destroyed is used by Jesus about things that are, have, have lost their purpose that are no longer fit for use. So you can have a perished tire, can't you? You say, that tire is destroyed. Has it ceased to exist? That tire is destroyed. Has it ceased to exist? It's still there, but it's perished. The lost coin, the word was used, Apollomai. Has that coin ceased to exist? No, but we can't find it. It's of no value until we find it. Those wineskins with holes in, they are, they, are they are destroyed. Do they cease to exist? No, but they're no longer any use for the purpose. I bring you right back to my teaching on Gehenna. It's for, it's for perish, those things that are no longer um, for, for, for purpose. Another argument, oh, I'm nearly finished now. Another argument used by, by uh, the annihilationists is that when I taught you in the first session here, I said that the title of my first session, remember, you can go on the internet and go back and you go to the media and you, if you go to the media section, press media, go down, you'll see that they have a number of series. If you press on the series uh, beyond death, you'll get all of mine in order. You won't have to go back week by week. And hello to everybody on the internet, because I know a lot of you who can't come today or, or in other countries are there, so you know that. So you can get them all. The first session was called um, the, 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 the Eternal Soul, I believe. And uh, the Immortal Soul, sorry. And I was teaching you that when God created human beings and created them in his image, he created, we are basically soul and body. And our souls are immortal. What does that mean? It means they never die. 
They never die, or they never cease to exist is a better word. So what happens at the moment of death is this. Your spirit separates from your body. Your body dies and will perish. But your spirit, your consciousness, remains. When you die, you don't fall asleep into unconsciousness. The moment of death that takes place in your life, you will experience a separation of your spirit from your body, but you will be as conscious the moment after death as you are before. In fact, maybe more conscious if you've been like in a hospital bed full of drugs and mind-affecting things. You know what I'm saying? You'll be conscious because your spirit is eternal. Well, the annihilation says, you know what, that's not Bible. And this is one of the big things. I've heard it so many times. Oh, Bruce, you're just, you're just so affected by Greek philosophy, Platonism. Because this comes not from the Bible, they say. It comes from Greek philosophy that says that the human spirit is eternal and the early Christian fathers and you have made the same mistake and read into the Bible that the human soul or spirit is everlasting. It's not there. Well, I mean, we've just gone through, I don't know how many scriptures over the last three weeks looking at hell, showing that the human spirit is conscious after death and continues to be conscious forever and ever. So Jesus is teaching... By himself, his teaching is that the human soul or the human spirit, whether it goes to hell or heaven, is an everlasting um, thing. The angels of God, they are eternal spirits. The Revelation speaks about the beast and the prophet being thrown in with, um, with uh, uh, the devil and the angels and all those that are in hell. They're all going to be thrown in to the lake of fire where it says their torment will be day and night forever and ever and ever. So the Bible teaches us about the immortality um, of, this, of the soul. And then finally, just a few remarks we've already mentioned about, um, oh, it's just not fair for someone who had 70 or 80 years of sin to have so long in hell. Well, that again is a misunderstanding of the justice of God. You see, we sit here and we make judgments, don't we, about what we think, what judgment is appropriate to a crime. So you're always reading the newspapers and sometimes the newspaper will be up in arms because a rapist served a sentence of a year or something, yeah? And we say, that is not just. That does not fit the crime. Or we'll hear about some totalitarian foreign country where, you know, someone's accused of reading their Bible in public, I'm making this up, but reading their Bible in pro- public, and they get 10 years. And we think, that's, that's not appropriate. And we, we talk about this. What is the appropriate judgment by a perfectly holy God who perfectly hates sin? What would be the appropriate penalty for the smallest sin? Well, it all depends. It depends your view of sin and your view of a holy God. If you have a low view of God, ah, God doesn't mind. God's just a God of love. He's not really bothered about sin. You know, we all make mistakes. You know, to err is human, you know. Well, if you've got a very low view of God's holiness, then you would be expecting probably everybody to get out of hell after a couple of days. Because you know, oh, God's a good God, you know. Uh, and, it, and, if you have a, and if you have a very low, of, low view of sin, you say, well, you know, 
I haven't done everything. You know, you hear them at funerals. Well, he was a bit of a lad. He had his difficulties, but he was a good man at heart. Well, what you're saying is, is, is you're dismissing the sin. But I tell you what, if you want to start thinking about what hell teaches us, you take the holiness of God and you ramp it up high, higher, higher. You think, think, as, think of the highest holiness of God you can. Okay? Double it, treble it, times it by 100. You haven't even touched the holiness of God. You think about how, what God thinks about sin and how he hates sin. Double it, treble it, times it by 100. You haven't even begun to know the offense that sin is to God. You hear what I'm saying? And so hell is appropriate. And I've already mentioned that those that are in hell aren't stopping sinning. They're continuing in sin. There's no repentance in, in hell. I mean, I'll, clo I'll close on this because I've said enough. Next week, we're going to talk about life in the millennium in our resurrected bodies, helping Jesus rebuild the world. And then we'll speak about heavens. But we have to, this is important teaching. I wish to God that we had the whole church filled for this session, the coronet filled downstairs, because I know that Colin keeps saying that this teaching needs to get out there, because people are living as if there's no hell. Christians aren't witnessing as if there's no hell to worry about. This is at the heart. I tell you what, if there's no hell, we don't need the gospel. Let's pack up our books and go down to pub. <laughs> there's no hell, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> But let me finish on this. Look at Jimmy Savile. Now, I first want to say, I have no idea what he did and what he didn't do. So I can't pass judgment on the man. But imagine all the things they're saying he did, okay? Can I do that? I don't want to pass judgment on somebody. I, I, I like the way that everybody can, have, can say whatever they want about somebody when they're dead. But I'm not passing judgment on him. It's not for me to do. But can we imagine that everything that people are saying he's probably done, he's done, can we? One of the things people are saying is he got away with it. He got away with all those years. If this had been brought out a year or so ago, he'd have to face. He'd have to face the penalty. But he cheated it all. He cheated justice. And he, and he died. And he didn't see everything. He didn't get... Do you know what? Justice will win in the end. This is the point about Thessalonians. Whatever's, whatever wrong is not righted on the earth, will be righted in heaven. Everything, everything, everything will be righted. And, and people say, I just don't see how a God of love can allow a hell to exist forever. You don't understand. Hell is not the problem to God's justice. Hell is the answer to justice. Hell shows God's justice. People say, I've got a problem, problem with hell. It raises questions about the justice of God. On the contrary, hell answers the questions of justice because everything will be completed. Everything in its right order. Uh, God's justice will be displayed forever and ever and ever. That's who he is. And God's love will also be displayed forever and ever and ever. And friends, you must have both. Of course, in my human nature, I'd rather there was, in the end, no justice at all. But I'm a fallen creature, slowly discovering the righteousness of God. Of course, in our human nature, we recoil against hell. Of course, and we should. But just because we don't like it doesn't mean that it's true. And remember, we're the clay, not the potter. And his ways are not always our ways. And a true 
Bible believer will not just take the sweet bits and cut out the sour bits, but a true Bible believer will believe the God that's in this Bible. The God of mercy and love and the God of justice and wrath. He didn't change his character from Old Testament to New Testament. If you think he changed in the New Testament, read Revelation. If you think there was no grace in the Old Testament, look at Abraham and the things that God did to people. God is God. He's unchanging. He's always the same. Let's not change him, but let him change us, even if we have problems with it at times. Well, see you next week where we're going to... Thank you. See you next week where we're going to move now into what's going to happen when Jesus returns and how we're going to be with him. I tell you, we're going to have a lot of fun in the millennium.